The way we eat has changed more in the last 50 years than in the previous 10,000. But the image that's used to sell the food, it is still the imagery of agrarian America. You go into the supermarket and you see pictures of farmers. The picket fence and the silo and the 30s farmhouse and the green grass. It's the spinning of this pastoral fantasy. The modern American supermarket has on average 47,000 products. There are no seasons in the American supermarket. Now there are tomatoes all year round, grown halfway around the world, picked when it was green, and ripened with ethylene gas. Although it looks like a tomato, it's kind of a notional tomato. I mean, it's the idea of a tomato. In the meat aisle, there are no bones anymore. There is this deliberate veil, this curtain that's dropped between us and where our food is coming from. The industry doesn't want you to know the truth about what you're eating, because if you knew, you might not want to eat it. If you follow the food chain back from those shrink-wrapped packages of meat, you find a very different reality. The reality is a factory. It's not a farm, it's a factory. That meat is being processed by huge multinational corporations that have very little to do with ranches and farmers. Now our food is coming from enormous assembly lines where the animals and the workers are being abused. And the food has become much more dangerous in ways that are being deliberately hidden from us. You've got a small group of multinational corporations who control the entire food system from seed to the supermarket. They're gaining control of food. This isn't just about what we're eating. This is about what we're allowed to say, what we're allowed to know. It's not just our health that's at risk. The companies don't want farmers talking. They don't want this story told. My name's Jules, and I'm Jess's mom, and my partner Sue and I farm 20 acres outside of Austin, Texas, and we farm following the three values that are on our logo, and that is humane, organic, and local. We read one of Joel Salatin's books, and he's featured in Foodie, and took away that the place to start is by identifying your values. So we identified the values humane, organic, and local. Be our decision-making basis and to be also our logo. It's our public face. And we put humane first because it matters most to me that the animals that are in our care have good lives. We raise chickens for eggs and meat. We raise ducks for eggs and we raise cattle for meat and as breeders, because it's a registered breed called the South Pole Cattle, which is meant to do well in the heat of the South. And then we've also begun a market garden and a very fledgling orchard, which we lost half of in the heat last year. What led you to this life? 
What led us here is buying the land, and that was one of those magical happenstances. I really didn't want to deal with Austin traffic, and we began looking and found this beautiful piece of land. And it only had cattle on it and a lot of trees, which is unusual in cattle country. Once we moved, we built a 14 by 20 foot house, and we wanted to have a small footprint, which 14 by 20 feet is a small footprint. And we have a gray and black water recycling system, so we don't waste our water when it's spent. We use it for growing plants. And we decided to farm after reading You Can Farm by Joel Salatin. Um, we have a South Pole uh, herd of just four, two cows and two heifers, and our 20 acres won't sustain many more than that. We have a fledgling orchard. We have a beginning of a market garden. And I'm just getting ready to add, I think, vermiculture, which is the raising of worms in some of our woodlands. So we have about three and a half acres in woods, about three acres in ponds that we leave as alone as possible for wildlife. And the rest of it is this treed, uh, it's called black oak savanna or post oak savanna, which is what's native in the area. So we follow the values of being humane, where the quality of life for our animals come first. And that means that our animals don't live in buildings, and they don't live on concrete, and they don't live smashed together. They live on the dirt, and we move their pastures so that they aren't harmful, so that they spread the wealth around with their manure. But they have fresh grass, and they have bugs, and the chickens get to scratch, and they roll around in the dirt, take dust baths, and they have a great time. The ducks go waddling off, and we have this runoff pond, and they love it in there, and they have a fine time in there, and they catch frogs and be ducks. And the cattle wander, and we rotate the pastures so that none of these animals put too much pressure on the land and the soil. We also have to think about how much stress our animals are under during transportation. So we do not raise the classic breed of meat chicken called a Cornish cross because they have been so genetically distorted that they can't live a real chicken life and they can't live a long life. Most of the chicken in grocery stores have been raised for between four and six weeks and their legs break. They're, they're genetically coded to grow big breasts and very, very quickly rather than growing their skeletal systems and their organs first. So we raise a French breed, a French stock, that qualifies for France's La Belle Rouge, which is much more stringent than the United States organic. And that means we have to have them sent via mail. And they arrive from Pennsylvania two days old and hungry and thirsty. And on the other end of their lives, because we don't have a processing facility on our land, we have to put them in crates and transport them to a processor. And right now we're trying to find one within an hour of our farm. And we now have to get up in the middle of the night because it's much easier for them to be moved when they're sleeping. And then we drive through the night so that at dawn we arrive at the facility and they have had much less stress. And that means that their lives have been better, their deaths have been better, and actually the food tastes better because the adrenaline of fear and pain are not excreted into the meat. And you would be amazed at how sweet meat, chicken and cattle meat, can taste when it's been produced with no stress. Jules, I actually have some experience with that from the lobster diving. As a scuba diver, I 
would do that every year in San Diego around October. And uh, the first couple catches that we made, we made the mistake of taking them home and snapping their necks and cooking them, not realizing that that's what happened, that the adrenaline gets shot in. And it makes a difference in uh, the texture as well as the taste. And not to justify what I'm doing, but but we found that the best way to do it really is to put them in the refrigerator overnight and let them slowly fall asleep and die. It's amazing when you're being thoughtful about animals, uh, some of the things you end up doing. Because um, if you're going to eat meat, then someone has to make it. <laughs> and how you make it and how you make it move from life to death becomes important and not something that most folks ever even think about. Is that pretty much how all farmers who farm sustainably feel about raising meat, or is this your individual feeling? I'm just curious because when I read up on the definition, it has to do with making sure that the waste from animals and preparation is also used and not wasteful. It's about a full circle of how you do this. Does this also seem to fit in with other farmers who do this sustainably? Good question, because the sustainability focus really is on having a net effect on the soils and the microbiology of the soils. So one would not have to be humane to be technically sustainable. My definition of sustainable also includes the Oh, we could call it karmic, but the what goes around comes around truth for me, that if we are producing food in such a way that causes angst and pain for what becomes our food, you pay for that. There's backlash to that because it just isn't right. So the short answer is yes and no. Moving the animals in pastures allows the manure to be spread. So we have the cattle come through and they mow the lawn about about a month before the chickens come on and they leave their cow patties. And then the chickens come over and they scatter them and they add their very high nitrogen poop to the mix. And then about, mm, depends on the rain, three to six weeks later or when it finally gets water, the nitrogen causes what's called a nitrogen bloom where a whole lot of grass comes up in that area and we bring the cattle back through to knock it back down. So the pathogens that are natural to each one of those species gets kind of wiped out and neutralized by the other species. That's a sustainable practice. That's that's one focused on sustainability. It also happens to be quite humane because it gives them nice lives out on pasture. And that is different from the issue of organic. Because some people who follow non-organic practices still would call themselves organic, I mean, um, sustainable. Could you redefine the difference? The difference between sustainable and organic is that you can be sustainable according to those folks' beliefs and not follow the USDA or any other organic guidelines. So if you're rotating pastures, if you are managing animal waste, if you are utilizing waste, it's called the Gaia um, cycle as well, so that waste becomes fertilizer that either stays on the ground or is composted to create rich earths that then enhance other parts of the land, like where you might do market gardening, 
then that's sustainable. And, and when you don't have gases from manures escaping into the air, when you're using seed that doesn't become sterile, there's a lot of sustainability practices. But Joel Salatin calls himself sustainable, and he also calls himself beyond organic. But he has also said, if I have to choose between buying feed corn from my neighbor with a little bit of atrazine, which is a really toxic chemical, then he would choose that rather than trucking it in because that's the carbon footprint part. You try to operate as locally as possible, supporting local economy, but also minimizing the use of fossil fuels and moving things around. But in my mind, when you use petrochemicals that kill all the plants, not just the weeds, or all of the microbiology and not just the pests, in the case of pesticides, that's not, I don't believe that's sustainable. So you might be moving animals around and stuff, but we have to get to a place where we stop using GMO seeds, genetically modified seeds that can't be reproduced, and when we stop using petrochemicals and toxins that actually have a net effect of negatively impacting the soils. So Salatin's lobby is is that the pasture is just so good and, and rich that the animals are somehow not affected. And I don't want to misquote him, but I mean, I've actually heard that in a couple of his online, I think YouTube possibly may carry those uh, movies of speeches that he's given. I happen to disagree with that. And he also raises Cornish crosses. And I, I disagree strongly with that. We shouldn't be producing animals that can, cannot exist in any way, shape, or form naturally. When you're talking about all this and how to farm sustainably, what is it that farmers have to face with pesticides being so pushed and volume of food and what you produce being such a big issue? How can farmers switch or, or become sustainable? Good question. One of the big issues around transitioning is you can't sell your food as organic. And if it's grains that become feed, uh, organic feed mills can't buy it. And we can't use it if we're certified organic. But the big issue is, is where does the money go that supports farmers, period? Because right now, the farm bill, the money that is available from our government to support farmers only supports agricultural, industrial agriculture. Um, the huge, huge tra- tracks of Monsanto GMO corn and soy fields, GMO cotton, um, land that doesn't produce if you don't feed it with petrochemical fertilizers and then they're dead because the, the herbicides and pesticides, there's no insect or bird life. It's kind of an eerie silence over those big, huge fields. Those yeah, farmers, yeah. it is. Yeah, you live in Iowa. Oh, yeah. So, oh, there's no bird songs at all. No, it's, it's really sad. Those farmers are supported to grow that way, and they're also supported to grow nothing at all. They are not supported financially, and there is no support in the farm bills to carry a farmer who's not growing anything to transfer his fields over to be able to produce and be certified organic. That's, a, that's a, at least a three-year process, and it may be longer depending on what you've used on your fields. And also you have to have a buffer against 
what other farmers may be growing. We've been draining down our freshwater resources you know, all across the planet at an absolutely unsustainable rate. They say in Iowa that a half of the topsoil is gone um, since it's been settled, and that same topsoil has taken a millennia to be built up. You know, people don't like to admit this, but it's cheaper to extract and exploit than it is to renew and regenerate. If we turned all of our farmland in this country to organic and regenerative methodologies where we're putting basically cover crops or compost back into the soil and not using chemical fertilizers, we could mitigate 25% of our emissions in this country alone. It's really important for us as citizens to understand the real cost of food, um, you know, at the environmental cost of the food, the production cost of the food, what the cost of the food is if all workers were in just and safe in environments and all animals in humane conditions. What's at stake is this silk cloth of the organic dairy industry. They don't want what you grow, even if the people want to eat it, they only want what they want to market. I've almost lost this farm very close. I've almost lost it twice in the last 20 years. We all eat every day, and we all buy food, and every purchase that any of us makes should be a purchase for what you're trying to see the world look like, not only for you know, the value of, of what you're buying at that moment in time. What kind of rise in sales in your business and the demand for what you're doing? Have you noticed, uh, I would say, in the last 10 to 15 years, or, or has it just been a, a much more recent phenomenon, or, or is it quite different than, than that and you're actually experiencing a, a drop in sales? No, we're not. We've only been farming for three years, and or this is our third year. So as a farmer... And, and as a community of farmers, we're part of an organic farmer organization, statewide organization. So I, I get a chance to talk to other farmers. And one of the things that will be raised is, is the idea of competition. And the fact is the market hasn't begun to be saturated because we are not able to produce the quantity of food that's, under, that's being demanded. And when movies like Food Inc. are put out and people see that, the demand only goes up. I get probably somewhere between four and ten emails a week from people who have found us on localharvest.com or eatwild.com or through the Farmer's Market Network um, or just because they Googled pastured chicken or organic farm Austin, Texas or something like that because they are looking for another way to get their food. So the demand is increasing. Um, production is actually the issue because it takes time. It's very labor and cost intensive to produce truly sustainable food, especially if you incorporate humane treatment into that equation. How do we increase then consumer access to sustainable foods? Ooh, that's a good one. I think that 
the approaches is many. And, and one thing I would just say is Food Inc. has done a very fine job of compiling a variety of links that will take you to different organizations. But I think that finding out where your food choices are that take you out of the uh, industrial agricultural model. And one thing that everyone who eats needs to know that unless you have found something else, you are eating industrial food at, at the supermarket, at the fast food in many cases under the label of things called natural and all natural and et cetera. Um, yeah, that's what just, I wanted to get into, that whole difference between that and, and what we do have access to in the stores and then how do we get access to support this? You're going to have to look. And at the same time, I think that advocacy is going to be critical. So if regular everyday consumers, not the farmers who are trying to produce food in an alternative fashion, but the people who are seeking it, when they contact their legislator and when they contact the USDA and when they contact Obama and they say the farm bill is completely skewed, money should be geared toward supporting farmers in becoming and maintaining their organic status and also in lowering the price of food to common people because food is cheap. Because taxpayers pay for the farm bill and the farm bill pays for people to raise this nasty food. That's why food is cheap. <laughs> you pay for it one way or another and we're paying for it in poor health and high taxes. And I am not an anti-tax, anti-government farmer and, they, and there are many out there, but I happen not to be one of them. Did the new legislation that was passed by Obama in January that requires proof of separate and identifiable contribution, blah, 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 to the subsidies. How does that affect you as a sustainable farmer? I'm not sure. I think that what Obama's trying to do is to create some transparency in the farm bill in the ways agricultural money gets dispersed. And I know that actually there is now money out there to support organic agriculture. And some of it is actually to retrain the people from the USDA and the extensions around the country and agricultural colleges in many cases to understand the, the work. Uh, I know that when we got started, I contacted our county extension person, and he had nothing to offer me. He had no idea. When we contacted one of the USDA programs, they came out and they looked at our land, and they had no idea what it meant to be raising chickens the way we raised them. They need to be educated. For example, we need a well. We put in a well. They cost a lot of money. The water isn't potable. We have to start again. We went back to that agency, the USDA program, which is Natural Resources Conservation Services. And under that, if you need a well for your livestock, then you can get help for that. But livestock is defined in Texas as cattle. And if you have surface water, meaning a pond, then you don't need any other water. And we said, well, our cattle can drink out of our ponds, but our chickens can't. And they just could not change their orientation to even attempt to fight for supporting our need for a livestock well. Because in their mind, 
there's only one way to look at it. So I know this isn't a good answer, and there's a whole lot more about the farm bill and about these farming subsidies than I can begin to describe. Uh, Organic Consumers Association, OCA, which is at OCA.org, does a pretty good job of explaining to consumers and farmers what some things mean when it is pertinent. So they've done a lot of talk about dairies and this whole issue around hiding the content of growth hormones in milk. And so they may actually have more information on it. I'm not really sure. Would you recommend that people steer clear of businesses that are generally assumed to be in places to go for for organic, sustainable foods like whole foods? Would you would you recommend going to a farmer's market over a whole foods? Yes, I would. I think there's a place for whole foods, and whole foods actually comes out of Austin, so that's its own issue. And I. We haven't received any money from them. I'm just being careful because I'm not in support of what they do because they're near me. I'm support because they actually put money into helping farmers produce food. But they also typically ask for a corner of that market. And the money is always going to go through a middle person. And so the farmer will receive less. I advocate that as that you find out, use localharvest.com or Eat Wild. Local Harvest is very good, and it's free to the farmer to change what their ads are. And find out who's around you and go to their farm. That would be the A number one thing to do because you get an education you're never going to get, not even at a farmer's market. But you're not going to get all your food at people's farms. So go to farmer's markets and talk to people and ask them how they grow their stuff. And if you like their personalities and their beliefs and you have a lot in common but they aren't organic, ask them to be. Ask them what kind of support they need to become organic and see what you might be able to offer. And I don't mean that you'll do it for them or pay it for them, but it might be, well, I can call my you know, state representative too and say, get some money freed up to help this farmer in your district to make the transition. Or whatever your beliefs are, the closer you can get to your food source, the better for those who produce that food source. I think that the the issue that you raise, though, is around mm, pseudo-organic values. Organic Consumers Association is good for this. It's not the only source. But they'll, they'll let you know which one of those big companies, you know, like Organic Valley is many, many, many farms spread across the country that all put their goods, say, let's say milk, into Organic Valley goods. Organic Valley is very good to their farmers. They help them find feedstuffs. They help them work through the system. They don't underpay them. So if you're going to choose between the Whole Foods brand and Organic Valley, I'd say you'd probably go with Organic Valley. But those things change. So, you know, you have to educate yourself and you have to kind of stay on it, too. Leanne just asked a really good question. She said if going to a farmer's market, how would she know if products are produced on a sustainable farm just by asking questions? Or is there any way she could know besides that? You can ask. Some of it's going to be belief. If your gut makes you wonder and you can get out there, then go see their farm. Another thing is going to be price because, well, because it costs money to raise food 
using organic feed if it's meat or not using fertilizers. It, it takes a great deal more physical labor to produce vegetables when you're fertilizing the ground with compost and you're rotating crops instead of just putting in some fertilizer and you're controlling the pests by actually picking them off of plants instead of spraying pesticides. So if you want to see, then you're going to have to go to their farms and really look for yourself and smell and listen. If you don't hear any bugs and you don't hear any birds, then they're probably killing the flora and the fauna with petrochemicals. Which takes us kind of into the Monsanto question. Uh, <laughs> I know it's a really bad topic, but but it is important. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of consumers don't know out there as far as, okay, we're buying you know our regular core foods and stuff uh, from the large uh, large farms. Well, they're doing that because, well, Monsanto is involved because uh, they're making it cheaper, quote-unquote, and they're also telling people that they have figured out how to feed the huge population by 2050. Uh, Mm -hmm. But what are we looking at later on as far as their seeds and their pesticides as opposed to the organic farming? Monsanto is not the only bad guy, but wow, is it a biggie. It is trying to get its products out worldwide. And when it does, their seeds do not reproduce. So we end up with contaminated natural or heritage seed fields where these farmers can gather their own seed and reseed. And then you end up with a field that when that crop is done, it's sterile. There's not going to be any reseeding. When their GMO seeds drift over and contaminate a neighboring field, they have been suing the farmer whose fields have been contaminated for stealing their intellectual property and using their seed without paying for it. Although the net result for that farmer is is the destruction of their own fields and the use of those seeds. They can't use it if they can't use it if it's organic. All of the pressure on being maintained organic is on the on the organic farmers. So the buffer zones are on the use up organic farmers' lands, and that's because of the lobby that Monsanto and other uh, industrial agricultural giants have. Archer Daniel ADM is another one of those big big corporations. The news is out about Monsanto. A lot of people are aware of them, but. These goods don't actually result in more nutritious food. In fact, in many cases, they are substantially less nutritious, even even by like what you might find in the seed source, the kinds of proteins that are present in the seed source. But when they're grown in dead land, then they're not picking up the minerals, the protein and the calcium and the other minerals that exist in healthy soil end up in healthy plants or healthy animals. So that's all gone. So you get a lot of food, maybe, but you don't get healthy food. And in a lot of cases, you don't even get a lot of food. Some of those crops aren't even working, and they they still push the seeds. India has been shattered. 